Hi, this is Dave Perry. In this podcast, I'll explore the question, are there any objectively true moral principles? In other words, are there moral obligations that apply to all of us objectively, even if we don't recognize them as such? First, I'll consider some theories that deny that there are any such obligations and some compelling reasons why those theories fail. And here I'm going to refer often to a great book by James Rachels called The Elements of Moral Philosophy. First, a theory called psychological egoism claims that we can't avoid being selfish, that even seemingly compassionate or self-sacrificial actions are really selfish since they're done to satisfy the agent's desires. Psychological egoism is an empirical theory rather than a normative one, since it attempts to explain motives and behavior rather than prescribe them. If it were a cogent theory, though, it would have profound implications for normative theories, because if we can only be selfish, if there's no such thing as an unselfish motive, then it makes no sense to pretend we're capable of ethical conduct or to debate the merits of various normative principles or theories, all of which assume we can be moral. Now, to be sure, selfishness can sometimes masquerade as altruism. Psychological egoism may be useful as a reminder that ostensibly moral motives can also be mixed with self-interested motives. But psychological egoism is not plausible as an explanation of all moral motives. As James Rachels points out, it assumes that any satisfaction of one's desires is selfish, but some desires can be self-interested without being selfish, and other desires are not even self-interested. And even if showing kindness toward others makes you happy, that isn't necessarily why you do it. Soldiers who throw themselves on live grenades to save their buddies don't do so in order to be posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Although we are clearly selfish some of the time, we can have unselfish motives too. We can be concerned about others for their own sake and not simply for what they can do for us. A second theory called normative egoism claims that I have no moral obligations to anyone else, only my interests count in deciding what I should do. Unlike psychological egoism, this theory prescribes a principle of conduct instead of explaining behavior or motivation. Normative egoism argues that one ought only to act in ways that promote one's own interests, even when they conflict with others' interests. Normative egoists are not necessarily unconcerned with long-term consequences, nor do they necessarily behave in an obviously selfish way, hence the term enlightened egoist. Egoists might want to keep their philosophy secret, though, since others would be unlikely to trust them if they knew they're really only concerned about themselves. But there are fatal problems with normative egoism. If another person's interests are identical to those of the egoist in all relevant respects, on what grounds could the egoists have preferential status? In other words, as Rachels argues, if I give my own interests greater standing than anybody else's simply because they're mine, that's arbitrary and thus logically untenable. A A third theory known as subjective relativism holds that ethics is relative to individual beliefs, that whatever you believe is right is right for you. 
Now, many people automatically fall back on a subjectivist viewpoint in situations of moral controversy, often because they worry about imposing values on anyone else. But few people are comfortable sticking with subjective relativism after some of its implications are recognized. Consider cases of rape or child abuse or slavery. Even if the perpetrators of such things believe them to be okay, that doesn't make them right. Those actions are unethical in spite of what their perpetrators might believe. And when we arrest and punish rapists and murderers, we're not unfairly imposing a merely subjective set of values on them. Finally, a fourth theory called cultural relativism claims that ethics is relative to cultural beliefs. Now, clearly, some moral differences between cultures are significant regarding the status of women or how the elderly are treated, for example. But many moral values and rules are shared across cultures, such as prohibitions on lying, stealing, and murder. In other words, cultural relativism tends to overstate the moral differences between cultures. But more importantly, the refutation of cultural relativism, cultural relativism is like that of subjective relativism. A culture's belief in something doesn't make it true for them. James Rachels asks rhetorically, is the earth really flat for people who believe that it's flat? Moral disagreement between cultures doesn't prove by itself that there's no objectively true morality. On the other hand, as Rachels also notes, we certainly ought to resist bigotry and ethnocentrism and not assume that everything that our culture believes must be right. But we shouldn't be afraid to challenge cultural beliefs and practices, including our own, that can be shown clearly to violate, violate basic human rights and universal or objective obligations. So rejecting subjective and cultural relativism need not lead to arrogance or imperialism, since our own views are subject to rational critique and revision as much as everyone else's. The point is to clarify and stand by those ethical principles that have the best reasons supporting them, and to refine or reject principles that exhibit bad reasoning. Now, the failure of the theories I've just summarized does not by itself show that there are objective ethical principles. A proof like that would require a much lengthier argument than I can provide here. For that, I recommend a really interesting book called Reason and Morality by Alan Gaworth. At this point, I'll simply assume that there are objective ethical principles, ones that apply to all rational human beings, even if everyone doesn't recognize them as such. The first category of those principles I would label compassion, meaning concern for the well-being of others, avoiding inflicting suffering, preventing and alleviating others' suffering, meeting the needs of the most vulnerable, promoting others' happiness, and so on. Second category of these objective principles is uh, fairness. In general, treating people the way they deserve to be treated as having equal rights unless merit or need justifies special treatment, or if their criminal acts cause them to forfeit such rights. Respect for individual autonomy is also an aspect of fairness. Not, man not manipulating rational people even for their own good. Honesty, not deceive deceiving anyone who deserves to know the truth, and not making promises that we don't intend to keep. Those are aspects of fairness as well.
Now, having stated those general ethical principles, I doubt that many of you would object to them, but you might test the plausibility of the ones I propose by asking yourself, what would be the logical and practical consequences of rejecting them? Wouldn't doing that have such alarming implications that it would be ridiculous to deny that they apply objectively to us all? And if you're tempted to deny that they apply to you, would you want to live in a world where no one else was obliged to take seriously your rights and well-being either? In addition to our obligations to uphold some general moral principles, we also accept more particular responsibility uh, when we take on certain roles. If I marry and have kids, for example, I implicitly accept responsibilities toward my family that are stronger than those of the average person toward them. If I'm hired by a corporation, I implicitly or explicitly agree to promote the interests of the company's owners, as well as other key stakeholders. If I'm a defense attorney, I incur strong obligations of confidentiality and so on toward any client whom I agree to serve. Or if I'm a journalist, I have a special responsibility to establish the veracity of a story before reporting it as news. Professional roles can create opportunities to fulfill a wide range of ethical obligations and ideals. Doctors and nurses can alleviate suffering, promote patients' health, and respect their informed consent. Journalists can expose government corruption and improve democratic accountability. Lawyers can defend the poor and the wrongly accused from injustice or prosecute dangerous criminals. And business people can meet all kinds of human needs in efficient and imaginative ways, increasing our quality of life. Professional life sometimes generates genuine ethical dilemmas as well, where multiple ethical principles conflict with one another. For example, medical treatments might extend the life of a patient with advanced dementia and be favored by the patient's family for that reason, but possibly also go against the patient's previously stated wishes and sustain a quality of life that is not valued by them. Journalists might be subpoenaed to reveal the names of sources to whom they promise confidentiality or face imprisonment if they refuse. Criminal defense lawyers sometimes face situations where their clients intend to give false testimony in court. The lawyers, on the one hand, are obligated to protect client confidences, but also not to present false evidence. And corporate executives can face decisions that will harm employees and their families, but may be necessary if the company is to avoid bankruptcy or simply to remain competitive. Ethical challenges, or what some call tests of integrity, can also arise in professional life where the ethical choice is clear, or should be clear, but where there are personal incentives or organizational pressures to do otherwise. For example, corporate purchasing staff or government officials might be offered bribes to choose certain contractors over others, thus undermining the objective judgment that they owe to their constituents. Physicians may be tempted to refer patients for unneeded tests or treatments if they have a financial stake in them, or withhold appropriate but expensive treatments if insurance companies or hospital cost-cutting goals insist on that. News organizations might emphasize celebrity scandals and shallow political controversies to entertain their audiences and maximize their advertising revenue, instead of investing in careful investigative reporting that might actually serve the public good. 
Lawyers might agree to take on potentially lucrative civil lawsuits even if they believe that their prospective client's goals are unjust. And salespeople might feel pressure to mislead customers about their company's or their competitors' products or services to meet sales quotas and earn commissions. I'll try to explore many of those sorts of questions in more detail in future podcasts. But in the meantime, here are some guidelines for ethical deliberation and action that I've found helpful. First, identify the issues. Is there a good reason to feel uneasy about this situation or proposed action? Is someone being harmed now? Could someone be harmed by the proposed action? Consider non-human critters as well as people there. Is the situation or proposed action unfair or unjust to someone? Are someone's rights or legitimate interests being violated or at risk? That helps to identify the issues. Secondly, expand the scope of the conversation. Do you need to hear other people's perspectives in order to avoid acting out of bias or ignorance? Who has the right to participate in the decision about what should be done? Whose voices should be heard but haven't yet been heard? How can we include them in our deliberations? And is there a need for further research into the relevant facts of the case? Third, imagine and weigh alternative actions. What could be done instead of what's currently being considered? Would any of the alternatives produce less harm and or greater benefits and would not violate anyone's rights or legitimate interests? What would be the most compassionate thing to do? What would be the fairest thing to do? If moral conflict or disagreement is inevitable, which course of action seems to affirm the weightiest values and to be supported by the best ethical reasoning? Fourth, identify obstacles to right action. Are there incentives or pressures to do what you know is wrong, such as selfish interests, social pressures to conform, or orders from higher authorities? If so, can those incentives or pressure be removed, negotiated away, and so on? And fifth, act with integrity and sensitivity. Think of a couple of people whose integrity, compassion, or pursuit of justice you greatly admire— What do you think they would do in this case? Could you justify your proposed course of action to them? If obstacles to right action can't be removed, then being a a person of integrity may require you to go against the grain or rock the boat in this sort of case. And if so, is there nonetheless a way to act that will minimize animosity or ideally convert enemies into friends? How can you foster a more civil and caring community by your words and deeds? This is David Perry. In my next podcast, I'll discuss the question, are any moral principles absolute? In the meantime, I hope you'll visit my website, practicalethicsinstitute.com. And thanks for listening.